Hello and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers thinking that 1995 romantic comedy Solitaire for Two couldn't get any worse when Right Said Fred appeared in the middle of a huge spectacular marriage proposal joke scene. I'm Tim Worthington and joining me to talk about some of the things that she remembers that nobody else ever seems to is theatre critic Shanine Salmon. Shanine, what are you up to? Where can we find it? So I'm still on view from the cheap seat. There isn't much theatre happening. There's an occasional stream going on that I review, but otherwise I'm not going anywhere. And also my blog Buffet Bitch, where again, I'm not going to any buffets because they're not open, but it's a good reference guide if you need it. Okay, well, I can't really think of any way of linking into your first choice from that because it is so dreadful. It just goes beyond jokes because there weren't any in it at all. There's a huge irony to that, which we find out in a minute, but let's just hear a bit of its comic brilliance. I've got the whole house to myself. It's like I died and went to... I did! Hell. How was your day, honey bun? Till now, great. You know, today will go down in history as the day when nothing went wrong. Yeah, the lights were green all the way to work. Then I managed to miss the Chris Evans show on the radio. <laughs> or, best of all, some miserable old so-and-so came into the shop and shouted at me. But then he went out and got bitten by a guide dog. <laughs> OK, you might recognise the voice of Russ Abbott there in ITV's Married for Life. Shanine, what was this? It was basically just a remake of Married with Children, which had been on in the US from 87 to 97. Married for Life comes in at 96, and I'm guessing the American people realise this is near the end. We need to kind of expand this universe, so what can we do? Let's do a British remake. And it's just, I can't remember a lot about it. I was reminded recently because of Sir Captain Tom in Barbados with Cliff Richard, which makes sense. Cliff Richard lives in Barbados. He's made a lot of money. He should live there. And Russ Abbott was also in Barbados. And I said to someone, how has Russ Abbott got all this money to be going to Barbados? And the person said, well, yeah, he can't be getting any royalties from Married for Life. And it kind of just triggered this vague memory. So I remember it being on. I'm not sure I remember really watching it, but it was kind of like yeah i'm just now you know goodness me 25 years on really flummoxed by not so much the remake itself but why they chose him yeah that is quite strange because he was somebody who he had been obviously a massive star in the 80s in particular and it's wrong to say his fortunes are waned because when his bbc show ended i think he tried to move more into serious acting and was quite successful in that field but this was just a strange venture full stop because the whole thing with married with children was that ITV had bought it when they first started doing overnight programming in the late 80s and like a lot of not as good American sitcoms that they put on overnight they just flung it out about two in the morning where it became a massive cult because it you know it was a really good series it was really wild as well especially for the time the whole fact the family were called the Bundys deliberately after Ted Bundy and they were all this is the mistake they made with Married for Life the Bundys all had likeable traits but they were horrible people and that's what drove the storyline you know, it was balanced against things like how devoted Peg and Al actually were to each other when their marriage was threatened. But they would spend the rest of the time trying to kill each other, essentially. And their children were both stupid and perverts, I think is the best way of putting it. Yeah, it was Fox. So it was kind of could be afforded to be quite risque. And that's the difference. ITV, particularly at this sort of time that Married for Life was on, was not going to be a risque show. You know, it just couldn't be. And I just think, I mean, I don't know who else I would have cast instead, but I certainly, in my notes, I've kind of gone... Who actively likes Russ Abbott to be tuning in for this? Russ Abbott, in my mind, is someone who was just there. I can't think who would have been a better fit, actually, because there wasn't a good fit to this programme. Like you say, it wasn't suited anything to do with Married with Children for the sort of audience that would have been watching ITV at, you know, I don't know what it was, 8 o'clock on a weekday, probably. might even have been earlier. They tried to do a couple of adaptations of American sitcoms rather than pay money for the actual sitcoms and then not know where to put them. There'd been one that worked, which is the upper hand, which is based on who's the boss I think purely because they didn't try to translate that directly they took the format and they basically made it into an ITV family sitcom and that kind of worked and I do remember when it was coming towards the end I remember the cast being interviewed on something and they said well if it gets recommissioned we've done all the who's a boss episodes now but the original writers have said they'll write new ones for us I don't know if that ever happened or not everything else they tried was Brighton Bells which is based on the Golden Girls where they just thought what if we take some Golden Girls scripts but have kind of horrible English cliche women. I think Jean Boat's character is basically a sub-Monty Python pepper pop woman. 
woman. It didn't yeah. work because it didn't have anything to do with what made the Golden Girls work. And then shortly after Married for Life, we got Days Like These based on that 70s show, which is just words fail me about that. Yeah, Days Like These is interesting because all the rest, including Married for Life, they were all remakes of the American episodes. And then Days Like These get Bane and Armstrong, this is pre-Peep Show, to rewrite stuff. So it's kind of like, well, why not just take it? If the American one works so well and that format has been semi-successful in UK adaptations, particularly the upper hand, then just do remakes. But I don't think British audiences, in the same way that American audiences, desperately need to see British versions of sitcoms. Absolutely not. And I think the big thing that I, because I don't think I really watched Married for Life, I might have seen one episode maybe, but I was absolutely shocked when I found out that the seven episodes were made, most of them were based on series one Married with Children which was all right but not quite there it's a bit like basing if you remade the simpsons on you know series one simpsons yeah where it's good reasonable quality it's not what it became but that's an ideal way to start out but one of them they did was from i think the fourth or fifth series eating out which is one of the classic episodes where the bundies suddenly come into some money decide to spend it all at a fancy restaurant where obviously you know they don't belong anyway and they've forgotten to take the money with them in Bundyland, as it was officially known that kind of thing leads to outrageous quite offensive schemes as they try to get out of it doesn't really work in a family sitcom with Russ Abbott where it would be yeah, like, you need oh to no that. we'll have to wash the no. dishes because <laughs> it's lovely cuddly Russ Abbott and yeah he doesn't have that sense of filth that you need and that I think the Bundys and the and the great acting in it Katie Segal as Peggy can't remember the name of the guy who plays Al Bundy but him he went on to do Modern Family and yeah you need that kind of and you need that sense of trust from the audience to bring in those kind of episodes where people start doing really outrageous things and I think they just kind of moved it as a template and was it is going to be as wild as the Fox version it couldn't be it was ITV probably what eight o'clock at night maybe nine o'clock yeah there is that kind of obsession it doesn't really work the other way around it's been more high profile over here i think in america they just take these formats and just do them so that they can go into syndication they're not trying to score a hit with them over here you know brighton bells on the front of magazines as if it was going to take not just the uk but the world by storm and it didn't and neither did married for life i wonder if any of the cast or crew have ever thought about it from that day to this I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the point. Hugh Bonville, who went on to do Downton Abbey, was the husband, the neighbour husband, that I think is called Steve in the American version. So the first husband, he was kind of based on that character. But from what I could see, I think he was the only sort of name apart from Russ Abbott. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what Russ Abbott is doing to be going on holidays in Barbados, but he must have some pot of money aside. I think the only one that I can think of that did okay was, I think, All in the Family is a very loose remake of Till Death Do Us Do Part but very loose it was very much someone American saw it and said that would work in America let's adapt it and that led to things like Maud and all those kind of things so if you take it as a very loose template I think it can work you've got a situation particularly Till Death Do Us Apart and All in the Family there's similar issues around kind of racism and identity and all those kind of things but the reason I speak as a huge Golden Girls fan the reason I think Brighton Bells didn't work is one the Golden Girls is so very good two it was still in memory if you're going to do remakes I think you need to have the series has ended and been off telly for a long time and then maybe you can look at doing it again or as I said you kind of do a thing sort of like friends and coupling which are very similar but they're not like for like remakes but they are taking that essence that makes something work but I just don't see the point it's not if there was a language issue then I would completely get if you're in Russia why not make married with children in Russian to make it accessible you don't need to do that with American or British sitcoms if they're good enough they will cross that Atlantic divide and just work and Married for Life feels to me like it was always going to be sort of set up for, to failure because it was at a time when the show was coming the, the American version was coming to its end and it was it was ITV just kind of going I think we need a sitcom and we don't have the resources or we don't have the trust in writers to create something original and I think there's a bit more trust with a lot of writers now and also isn't it strange that anything with sitcoms nobody ever tries to redo sketch shows in the transatlantic style <laughs> didn't get the American Peter Sanford which show yeah, <laughs> I don't know how they would have adapted that you know how would yeah. Brian Butterfield work in America they think he was real yeah it's 
weird and I think I can't imagine any network I don't know you see it still now I think when Peep Show was on there was lots of we should make American Peep Shows and they never came to anything and they were looking at making kind of all female versions in America and all those kind of things I kind of think now you just have to accept and it's probably a bit more of a global citizen approach and just like if an American version works and it's getting viewers why are we spending money on making a a word for word version with British accents it's like it's just a waste of money right now at a time when TV commissioning probably doesn't have that money to spend. Well, speaking of wastes of money, I'm wondering if you've wasted any of the virtual credits that are available in your next choice, which is something that's really just a title to me, but I think we're going to find out a bit more about it now. from Habbo Hotel, which is something that I only really know about because I've read a feature on it in the Virgin Trains onboard magazine in about 2000. <laughs> Shanine, what was it? They described themselves as an online game. So when I knew it, it was Habbo Hotel. And it was a little thing where you could create your avatar and design hotel rooms. And it was basically a chat room as well. So it combined all these things. And the reason I'm sort of thinking about it recently was I've been playing Among Us a lot. And I hadn't realised that Among Us is basically aimed at children. <laughs> and like because of the nature of technology. So when I was on Habbo Hotel about 20 years ago, it was very much you needed access to a computer there wasn't the sort of concerns about who you were talking to as well. Whereas nowadays, I was amazed to see Habbo was still going in some form because I just feel like it's the sort of place where as a parent, you would tell your child not to go on to it. But at the time in, in 2001, when I was on, or 2000, 2001, it seemed really exciting. It was kind of accessible. I don't remember kind of spending any money on it, but there were things like you could go in a swimming pool and you could chat to people and it was a way of meeting your online friends or school friends or whatever without having to sort of be physically in the room with them and at a time when we're not physically in the room with anyone else apart from who is in the household I'm amazed it hasn't kind of had sort of more of a resurgence so you know it's obviously we've got video conferencing and we've got our Zooms and we've got our Teams and we've got Skype and all these kind of things where we can actually see people now but there's some days where you don't want to turn your camera on and I would happily just create an avatar and say look I'll meet you by the swimming pool in this fake virtual hotel and go from there really so yeah it's partly it's a nostalgia but even though it's still going I was I was really surprised to see it was because nobody talks about it anymore it's not the sort of thing that I think would impress anybody the graphics are really basic and I think when I was doing it back in 2000 I'm amazed my computer was even able to run it so it's yeah it's nice and I don't know who was it seemed to me because of the cartooniness of it even now it was aimed at children and then this era of well you shouldn't be letting your children run wire on these kind of things anyway but what else were children doing in 2001 you know it was that weird mid time where a lot of people had access to computers but were not really using it beyond kind of school work or you know their parents might have had one and they were allowed to go on for a couple of hours in the evening. That's the thing. I think when it was launched, that generally, you know, that generation of that age were more tech savvy than everyone else. And it was that they discovered these things before, you know, concerns could be raised or before they could really fully be abused in various ways to the extent they are now, you know, whether it's exploitation, whether it's unsavoury people, whether it's financial. That sort of thing was less of a concern just generally then. Like you say, it was a more open world. I mean, I remember this was around the time you first started doing kind of criticism and stuff online I don't think a lot of people realised you were still at school at that point <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. it was this weird interest of these quite childlike youthful things but then also my interest at that time in, in British comedy and, and not married for life but other yeah. British comedies <laughs> that were better so yeah there was that aspect of you were talking to in my case talking to these adults anonymously and it seems I said I feel quite odd saying it because it was a more innocent time there wasn't talk of kind of grooming and all those sorts of things it's only I would say in the last sort of decade or so that that has really been a major factor in how safe people are online and safeguarding and things like nobody said safeguarding in 2001 you went online you logged on and you did what you needed to do but yeah it was it, there wasn't an approach to kind of making and I don't think the forums I was on should have been very child friendly but you had that balance of actually there was a lot of freedom there wasn't really you know so much that's age restricted now it wasn't in the early 2000s because it just parents didn't think about those sorts of things it was very strange 
stranger danger in their approach, not really thinking that actually the strangers are going to be some, you know, 100 year old man on Habbo Hotel talking to 12 year olds. It just feels quite strange that in that very brief amount of time, relatively, we've only in the last few years really gone, God, that, that wasn't safe. And how do we make the Internet a safer place for young people? Because, as you said, they're the ones that really know how to use everything. Yeah, I think that's it. There's very little kind of... I mean, there's information about the fact it exists out there and how long it's been around and how much money it's made and various safeguards have had to bring in. But the actual use of Habba Hotel itself... There's very little information about. Just images of, you know, very blocky figures, which do look outdated now, the avatars. I will say that. The other thing I found out is apparently gorillas had an official presence on there, which actually makes sense when you think about it. Actually, saying gorillas now, do people realise that I mean Damon Albarn's virtual band? Or are they now such a thing of the past that people are thinking about the actual (laughs) species gorillas had an official presence on there? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. But it makes sense because, like, how you you know you're trying to use particularly you know gorillas who are slightly older than than i was but they've probably been told oh yeah there's lots of young people on this platform and you can have this big event with lots of people because it seemed at the time like it was unlimited and it must have had some limits because the internet in 2001 was not very good but it just felt like you could just go on you could wander about a bit you could kill a few hours and then you leave again. So it's a, it's a great. I'm amazed there aren't more, particularly now in the in lockdown. My partner saw a um, Jean-Michael Gere New Year's Eve virtual reality New Year's Eve party. And that's the way I think a lot of things are going to be going forward. It's not going to be like your standard launches in a fancy gentleman's club. It's going to be using technology to open up to audiences that probably weren't that familiar with you beforehand. And yet, like you say, I'm amazed this run on any computers back in 2000, 2001, because that's around <laughs> the same time. Funnily enough, I was talking about this on Twitter the other day, about, do you remember The Junkies, the sitcom pilot that David Quantic wrote? Yes, I don't think I ever watched it, but I knew of it happening at the time. It was Peter Bainham, Peter Serafinowicz and Sally Phillips playing sort of comedy heroin addicts, if that sounds right, in a really, really good pilot. But the problem was, it was the first online sitcom that ever been. And it was a, you know, it was a really interesting move, but it's almost impossible to watch it on the kind of connections we had then. I remember having to work out a way of downloading it and then briefly becoming a bit of a celebrity because I knew how to download it and watch it offline. It just doesn't seem like this could have worked on those kind of connections. So I'm really intrigued by it. How did you find it as an experience? I think at the time it was okay. I mean, as much as it looks like it's quite crowded and a lot going on, I'm sure it was probably slow compared to what I'm used to now. But it worked fine. It's just because it's quite cartoonish. And yeah, you're right. You're kind of coming at a time where there weren't things like YouTube and there wasn't anything that was kind of really high powered or you'd expect to be high powered to be a good experience. I don't think it needed to be particularly fast. It was just a cartoonish way of either speaking to your friends and they made avatars who looked like them or you just kind of met new people and you didn't know who they were and you'd never speak to them again. Do you still have your avatar saved anywhere? I don't know. I can't remember what my name was. I mean, I can't remember like at what point I grew out of it. Probably around probably like I'm going to be generous and say 15, 16 because I just at that point the big lapse the big, big difference between the internet in 2000 and the internet in 2005 was huge and there was more things going on and kind of more ways of talking to people it's still a nice idea I think in some ways it does feel like it's more protective because you aren't saying this is me you can just create the avatar and you can be who you like but we're now at a point where that's you know people expect to see the real you now particularly in the last year I think before the last year you probably could have got away with saying oh this is maybe what I look like and doing some sort of catfishing it's really hard to justify catfishing nowadays <laughs> like I think why it's always hard to justify it to be fair <laughs> but yeah it's just feels to me I mean as I said I'm genuinely surprised it's still going but I can understand why on some aspect there's a safeguarding issue but in other aspects you can protect yourself you can be who you want to be on those sorts of things and that's what I think is still the plus with the internet is this idea that you have to be completely honest about who you are but actually why you're particularly if you're young you're still trying to work out who you are and what you want to be and Habbo amongst other things created that kind of barrier whether it's the safest place to create that barrier I'm not sure but 
it is a nice thing for particularly young people who are still they might not want to reveal their identity there might be things that they're still working out about themselves and that provides a degree of anonymity okay well for your next choice it's something from the same year that have a hotel was launched but unfortunately i haven't been able to find anything of this itself so here's a clip from something with the same name which we are also going to talk about in case you're wondering who is Belon, who is blacker blacker is the one that is dark <laughs> Okay, that's a little bit of stand-up comedy from Blouse and Skirt, a one-off 1992 Channel 4 comedy special. But before we come back to that, Shireen, what was BBC Two's Blouse and Skirt? It was, I mean, I'm just looking at the description. It describes itself as kind of a sketch comedy, but that's not what I remember. I remember a kind of question time looking studio and the idea of debate. So I think in the first episode I've just seen, so it's 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 very much the kind of people from Real McCoy. So Felix Dexter, Curtis Walker, those types, but also kind of people that had come up in the late 90s, early 2000s. So Gina Yashir was on it. And then they had Glenda Jackson as a guest when she was MP. So I think it was about, I don't know, it's like a comedy panel show, but it wasn't a panel show in the way that we would describe a panel show. It was very much focused on black comedy. Yeah, it's really weird. I just remember kind of seeing it. So it was just before my nan died and I'm, my maternal side is kind of Jamaican descent. So there's still that point in the early 2000s where there wasn't a lot of things with black people on. Real McCoy had been a few years ago. We had club class, which obviously I talked about last time I was on here. And this kind of, yeah, just came into my head because it was this mix of, was it stand up? Was it discussion? Was it, what was it? And I'm still not sure. It's very telling that no one's put a clip up of it because I'm not sure it probably worked as well as they hoped it would. Well, there was a general attempt to try and get off-the-wall Question Time-style comedy discussion shows off the ground around them because there were all kinds of examples. Like, there was Loose Talk, which is based on the long-running Radio 1 topical discussion series where they did it on TV and it just didn't work to the extent... Only a couple of months after it had been on, Richard Herring listed that in his celebration of mediocrity of himself on BBC Two's Loose Talk. There was drama The Fisher Circle on Channel 5, where it was a bunch of unlikely people in terms of an unlikely combination of people. So say you get like, up one extreme, you get Richard Bacon just after he'd been drummed out of Blue Peter, and you get, do you remember Benji the Binman Pell? Who was oh, that no. very strange man who went through celebrities' bins and sold secrets that he found to the tabloids. Oh, you get them talking about things that have been on TV. There were endless attempts to do that that just didn't work. And this is one of them, but this is more interesting because I remember it being not self-consciously, we are zany, we are wacky, we are doing something different. It was just basically kind of, how do we make fun of the news in an actual sensible, adult, serious way? It wasn't like Mock the Week, should we put it that way? Yeah, and I think from a black point of view, and I think at that time, I think it's the timing I find quite interesting because I think it's something that if you brought back now would be really interesting. And I think ITV sort of attempted something very similar with a show called Sorry I Didn't Know which I didn't really watch because again I wasn't really sure what it was and I've sort of had a quick look at it. It's light entertainment around black history and it came as originally they turned down the pilot and said we don't want to commission this and then Black Lives Matter happened and ITV realised that they desperately needed some more black focused programming and there's this fear still that you get these programmings every few years where a channel goes oh look what we've done for the black community we've put this on but we've only given it one series and we haven't made archives very easy to get hold of for anyone who wants to remind themselves of it and real mccoy had that that's the rumors that real mccoy had been wiped went around for a long time and obviously now it's on bbc iplayer but it wouldn't surprise me if they they wiped blouse and skirt or you know it's just somewhere in a vault under the wrong name or something because there isn't really that care and attention and i really hope 
going forward channels do kind of keep that conversation going because at the moment it already feels like i mean it was nearly a year ago it feels like the black lives matter is just not being talked about anymore organizations have given up individuals have kind of given up it's how do we keep that conversation going and i still stand by that television is the best medium for that it's the most accessible and it's a way of keeping the conversation going not only amongst the black community but everyone but yeah what the aim was in 2000 and what had happened that's what i would like to know why they said oh okay we need a weird question time sketch show stand up thing why what what was going down that that seemed like the best format and not for example to just have more black-led sketch shows or more black-led sitcoms well apparently this is according to the second edition of the radio times book of tv comedy which was published not long after this was on but apparently it started as an insert of something called the a force which i've got no memory of at all and to be able to find nothing out about i don't remember that apparently well, it's a late night bbc2 strand but speaking of the unavailability that's something that bugs me that now disclaimer at the beginning i am not saying archive tv is well it is dominated by white men archive tv fandom let's just be blunt about that and yeah. a, a certain strand of white men as well i'm not accusing directly people of racism here i have to be absolutely clear about that but it bothers me slightly that you know you can find almost any bit of rubbish that was on tv from around then without having to look too hard you know somebody's uploading it somewhere in some form somebody will have some of these on tape and they've not uploaded them and i'm not saying that's a deliberate act or whatever but it shows how unconsciously people don't understand the importance of things maybe yes absolutely i think that's the big issue it's around like why i'm not interested in this so why would anyone else and that's why representation is so important and you're right as someone who is a member of kind of archive tv groups and has it as an interest i'm probably not being loud enough in saying like look for this sort of stuff like it is it is of importance and when people particularly young people say oh i'm not very well represented it's because there isn't you know you can't do a search for blouse and skirt on youtube and see this show and see what the bbc was doing in the early 2000s and the bbc even if it wasn't very good the bbc should be saying well this is why we did that and maybe we should look at doing it again but you're right there is a bias towards certain shows and i think even when you go to things like missing believed wipe at the bfi you know they talk about certain things and the only reason like Nigeria comes up is because someone hopes that there's some old Doctor Who's in Nigeria. (laughs) Nobody ever says, well actually, maybe they've got some really interesting programming, not just in the UK, that was shown in the UK, but that is useful worldwide. And yeah, so you've got, I agree with you, you get a certain type who are interested, who have a very narrow viewpoint and don't kind of probably fast forward through these recordings and don't look through. Yeah. But yeah, you are right. People do overlook these things. And there's also the risk that it annoys me that this still happens, that if you do, you know, a progressive programme in some way, if you take that risk and it doesn't work, that the response tends to be, well, we tried that. It didn't really work. That's why I was so nervous about when it was becoming increasingly obvious we were going to get a female Doctor Who, which I'd been lobbying for for a long time. There were a lot of names being heavily pushed by people that I thought my concern was if they try it and it doesn't work, people are going to say, oh, well, we tried that. It didn't work work we're not going to do that again and you know there were people who don't even act for being pushed for it so when they announced Jodie Whittaker I was so relieved yeah you know, that actually stands a good chance now but there does tend to be that thing and I imagine that's what happened here they did one series it didn't really catch on it was probably on at like stupid o'clock at night yeah I've not I've not seen when it was on but yeah I agree with you I think it was probably at a time where it wasn't people weren't going to just come across it yeah I've just had a look at the genome project and it was on 11 20 so I'm guessing post news night which is not a good comedy slot for a first broadcast it's fine if you want to put repeats in but well, especially when people have just been depressed by the news as well yeah. and it was a le- it was a wednesday like wednesday's a terrible like midweek 11 20 <laughs> yeah there isn't a lot of i think a lot of faith and you do need to kind of really or someone needs to not you specifically but really kind of push for well what does archive television look like and how does it represent the last 50 60 years then that's going to include a lot of black and Asian and other minorities. 
But if you focus on another all-white spy drama from 1955, that's all people are going to think of when they think of archive TV. Well, that gives me a good way of moving into the other thing we're going to mention, which is it's reminded me of one thing that annoys me, gets written out of history now. It's not just gay time TV from the early to mid-90s, which is quite a... I mean, it wouldn't probably wouldn't sit well now because it played to a different kind of audience, but that was important. But in, throughout the 80s, it was Out on Tuesday, which is a gay magazine magazine show that you know whether i was at school at the time and it used to be a kind of uh, you watch out on <laughs> tuesday you do you know which sometimes i watched it just because of that <laughs> but you know they've been kind of written out of history but that's sort of moving me on to there was another blouse and skirt as i say on channel 4 in 1992 which i have vague memories of going out which is I think it was Caribbean comics who were all really good from what I remember. And yet that's kind of fallen down the back of the sofa a bit as well. I mean, Channel 4 always did those kind of things early on. They'd have Finnish comedians on and that sort of thing, or comedy dramas from Sweden or things like Empress Wu. You know, they were open to what was going on in the rest of the world. And this was a really good example, but it just didn't inspire anything further for some reason. No, so it's kind of a one-off to kind of go, let's showcase all these comics, including Oliver Samuels, who, if you've ever lived in Hackney, I think he lives in London now or he comes to London, but he will do these kind of very black plays or comedy plays that are aimed at the, the black community. And yeah, it was that's the kind of stuff. Again, that's great that they did that. But having it as a one off is not a commitment to different voices. It's tokenism. It's we're going to commission this one off thing and say that we did it and it will look great in our annual report. But we're not going to give you a whole series. And this guy, particularly Oliver Samuels, I'm not sure who else was in it, but he'd been on the Jamaican Broadcasting Corporation. You know, he'd had his own series and he was known in that. So it was about kind of, you know, that generation, particularly those who had come over from Jamaica or had parents to kind of go, oh, look, this is what the Jamaicans are doing and this is how it's working. And then nothing more. And the real boldness is not only just commissioning those sorts of things to series, but to say, okay, yeah, it is struggling a bit, but we will give it time because this is probably going to be a word of mouth and it's always going to get a small audience because it isn't necessarily mainstream and there's this focus now I think across television about how do we not alienate anyone it's like well who cares like have specialist things for people who will watch it and they'll be loyal and it won't be into the sort of tens of millions but no television is in tens of millions now <laughs> like it's not how television works anymore so it's a very old-fashioned look at what television does and who it's aimed at and the truth is with the with streaming with catch up nobody's all watching the same thing at the same time it's taking people years to catch up on things and if you just have a bit of faith and if it's if it's not costing you that much money just give it a couple of series and then say look we tried we really tried it reminds me of kind of the issue i can't remember the show but it was on netflix and it was a latino based show and they said oh well it's not getting the numbers and it wasn't getting the numbers because it wasn't appearing on people's front pages and it was really hard to search for so if you've got that situation where you go oh we're making it but we're going to put it on at midnight or we're going to make it difficult for you to find don't be surprised when nobody watches it that's the thing i would much rather have a situation where there is on terrestrial television at least because it's a bit more difficult to gauge with streaming because it's so market-led but something for everyone and woe betide anyone who says oh it's not fair there's a program on that's not for me well so what yeah yeah i think that's it it's just kind of being a bit more open i don't think television is is willing to take those risks and i think even you know i think what is worrying we are still in the same place that we were 21 years ago it has not progressed and it's about responding to major issues rather than saying well why don't we have a panel show about black history that is surely is history it's relevant to everyone it shouldn't take the deaths and the realization that people face a lot of prejudice for commissioners to say oh well, we should throw out some black programming now it shouldn't even be seen as black programming it should be black led and black focused but it's not programming that is just for black people absolutely we've got to your next choice now which is television that i think basically isn't representative of very much at all he was a cop and good at his job but he committed the ultimate sin and testified against other cops gone bad cops that tried to kill him but got the woman he loved instead framed for murder now he prowls the badlands an outlaw hunting outlaws a bounty hunter a renegade
okay, that was the theme music from Renegade, a series that I kind of vaguely remember existed, but I think I've tried to blot it out of my memory. Uh-huh. Late 90s, showed over here, I think around 2000. Shanine, enlighten me. So my memories of it, it just came to my head recently because it was one of those things we were talking about earlier, those shows that ITV threw out at like one, two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I don't think it was on that late, but my mum was obsessed with Lorenzo Lamar's. Yes. It was a regular <laughs> thing in my house. Because he, I mean, he was a, he was a very good looking man. He, I mean, he's still okay, but he's not as good looking as he was. But it was a baffling show. It had this kind of Native American element. I think he'd been a cop. And it was very, if it had been a film, I don't know if it was a film, but it felt like it should have been a film that's outstayed its welcome. It had like five series between 1992 and 1997. And it wasn't really on a US network either. It was just sort of made and then thrown out to syndication, I think, across all these local ones across America. So I feel like ITV were just throwing money at having American programming, particularly at that time, because obviously Channel 4 came into existence and Channel 4 was getting all the good sitcoms. I don't think ITV really had the place for that, but it did have the place for as I said Renegade really late at night and then things like Equalizer as well which even that had Edward Woodward in that again felt like that was always thrown at like midnight on a Saturday but yeah I don't really I mean it wasn't very good I'm amazed it lasted as long as it did and I was looking it up today and I'd forgotten that I actually came from a really good pedigree so the guy who created it was Stephen J. Cannell who created 21 Jump Street and Rockford Files and the 18 and the 18 yeah which are all classics like even if you've never seen an episode of those things you vaguely know like Johnny Depp was in 21 Jump Street James Garner was in Rockford Files and obviously 18 with Mr. T and, and all those kind of things but there is not I think if I mentioned Renegade to people they would just look blankly at me because no one just just was not discussed and it's still not discussed now like no one looks back on it with fondness yeah he was basically just a bounty hunter wasn't yes. he and that, that's all there is to it there's no more novelty to it no more yeah. storyline to it his wife had been murdered I think or disappeared in circumstances and that was the gist of it he was just kind of this lone man and yeah it feels like it should be people should be quite nostalgic for it but nobody remembers it fondly or at all well yeah and like you say it was on in the middle of the night over here and as far as i can tell from some clips on youtube it was immediately before in bed with me dinner so possibly possibly people saw the last two minutes before that at the credit yeah because you know that, that was one of the few overnight shows that people actively went out the way to watch i don't really think they would have really picked up on this as something to tune in for earlier no, the next very, week yeah very different audiences and in in bedroom dina feels like it suited that slot perfectly because it's about kind of post pub telly whereas renegade was just like they spent a lot of money on this they need to throw it out and maybe it was getting enough viewing figures to justify having a slot but yeah, I just, I think it's what happens with ITV now and it doesn't, I can't think of any channel really that has that kind of late night approach, particularly in this country. So in the past, you would have kind of new episodes go out really late at night and that was their way of just dumping it. Now, again, going back to kind of how awful technology is, you know, you don't need to. If you bought a show like Renegade and it wasn't doing well, show one episode and then shove the rest up on streaming. You don't need to commit to it anymore. But why ITV committed to it, you know, they could have found something else, sure. that's <laughs> Lot because I don't know I'd love to know what the viewing figures were because it was just such a ridiculous time and it wasn't the sort of show that you could talk about around the water cooler because it was on so late well Lorenzo Labas is of great interest to me because he was one of the stars of a program that I'm astonished nobody's ever picked for this and which to be honest I was going to pick if I did it as a guest again which is California Fever oh really weird story behind this it was a late 70s one season American teen show about some teenagers who visited the beach a lot and were having like showdowns at the roller disco I think they were involved with a pirate disco radio station as well he was their slightly older friend Rick who owned a kind of beachfront cafe that they hung out in the odd thing was obviously it was quite racy in terms of you know because American teen shows were in those days but the BBC bought it and for some reason used to put it out in the school holidays you know in that morning slot where it'd be alongside the Pink Panther and so on. So it was a huge kind of cult thing that this slightly more adult spicy programme that you'd been expecting was on. They didn't seem to have cut it very much either. (laughs) 
it was a glimpse of a lifestyle that you wouldn't get but it wasn't in a kind of saved by the bell sort of way where everything's all right at the end of the day everyone more or less gets on it was kind of like a real life thing people like Bethany Hills 90210 but without the gloss but that's always been for years and years I remembered the theme song burnt into my mind was nothing of it online some of it has surfaced more recently I love the fact that he had a career after California Fever because that was all I knew him for yeah and quite I mean he was in Falcon Crest he was in Greece I think before California Fever and yeah and it's just I mean he said he he was particularly during that kind of renegade era and even the Falcon Crest era that kind of 80s 90s he was a very good looking man you can absolutely see why they went let's just throw a lead role at him it will people will watch it but it was just baffling really I don't remember anything like really they didn't they didn't feel any peril because the whole setup was him constantly in peril the individual episodes didn't really matter and people came and go I think he like sacked there was a woman in it who was in the first series and I think she was his wife and then they divorced and then I think he replaced her with whoever his new wife or oh, new no. piece was and you just think that wouldn't happen I mean you hope it wouldn't happen now but yeah the 90s are a very different time <laughs> well I do know that I've read this an extensive summary of the series plot on the Wikipedia page and I've read it three or four times I still don't really know anything about it no it's I mean it features like I said Bobby Six Killer which is a great name and then his name's like Reno Reigns which sounds like like an 80s video game character and it's just yeah it's kind of trying to encompass all these different things so it's got the kind of Native American imagery but you've also just got this man who wears like leather jackets all the time it's clear I think it was meant to be light and frothy and it was like let's hope we just get lots of women and men tuning in because they fancy Lorenzo Lamar's <laughs> no other reason apparently there was a pilot for a spin-off called Carico Quinn featuring a semi-regular character and that never happened happened but how did this get a spin-off yeah i i mean it went for a long time but i don't the the person that they chose to be the spin-off character i just genuinely don't remember at all like i when i saw there was an attempted spin-off section i was like surely they mean bobby six killer with his great name but no and that's it people did weren't watching it for the story it wasn't like we were desperate to know what happened next in the renegade universe people were watching it because of lorenzo that was lit that was it there's nothing else to it it was just a bit of fun and we'll put him in a vest and he's got lovely long hair and that's my memories of it and i think it's very telling that's the only thing i remember which is him and nothing else well we're staying in late night itv land for your next choice this is something again i know i watched i've got very little recollection of so here's a bit of music you might recognize and we'll say why it's there in a minute Always and Forever by Kylie Minogue. You might notice it sounds a bit like it's been edited down and compressed to be a TV theme. That's because it was. Shanine, what was it the theme from? It was a theme from Night and Day, which was a soap that was 2001 to 2003. So I think it was ITV's attempt at Hollyoaks or being Hollyoaks because you'd have a daytime version that was kind of tea time and then you'd have like a I might call it night and day nights or night and day late or unedited (laughs) or extra or whatever they called it which was a bit more graphic and the reason I think people don't really talk about it that much one it wasn't very good two it was on exactly the same time as the Crossroads revival the Crossroads revival was was so distracting and I think I was probably watching both at the same time at least Crossroads had that history even though it was absolutely Absolutely awful the revival it harked back to that time and it had lovely Jane Asher who I'm a fan of all that Night and Day had was Leslie Joseph it had a McGann by law you have to have a McGann in these <laughs> I think it was, it was Joe McGann so this was post upper hand and Lizette Anthony who's now in Hollyoak and someone whose name who I should have looked up but I didn't look it up but basically he later went out with Lulu who was about 30 years older than him and that was like the exciting Night and Day tabloidness of it but it was very much like a US soap I think you know there was people being switched at birth there was like mysterious murders there's the whole storyline which is weird for a soap and i think it starts off in all soap traditions is two two of the lead characters are 
are having their 16th birthday they have the same birthday and the attractive one who's sort of having an affair with Joe McGann's character disappears and yeah basically was axed within six months but because they knew it was being axed they could just go completely mad so you've got that whole switched at birth thing that comes out so there's a slightly incesty element and then there's a ghost haunting the street but it got I'm just looking at it now I'd forgotten Kathy Tyson was in it Gareth Hunt Glynis Barber who went on to do EastEnders Sally Dexter who was in an awful Spice Girls musical I saw called Viva Forever so it had quite a pedigree of these quite experienced actors as well as quite new people so Adam Paul Harvey who was probably best known for Night and Day but he was kind of went on to do some Doctor Who stuff because he used to go out with Georgia Tennant before she married David Tennant I think it never got the viewing figures I don't think people were particularly interested and if people were interested there was this weird crossover between you've already got the new Crossroads which in itself is more exciting and yeah just what I don't know again I said I get the impression it was aimed at youngish audience but then having the late night version makes me think actually they didn't want very young people really watching it as well so describes itself on Wikipedia as a soap opera and a mystery which not many soaps do yeah I mean there was I think again it was something they tried to do a few times around then ITV seemed determined to get this going for some reason was a soap opera with a twist they do actually say on the Wikipedia page that it drew comparisons to Twin Peaks now I'm going to say they weren't favourable comparisons let's just say yeah, that so it, it I, I can't believe for a second anyone said nice and day is the new Twin Peaks well actually probably some magazine columnist said it because they'd missed out on another recent hit and wanted to be the first to say this was good but nobody watching it thought ooh do you know what this rivals Twin Peaks in my affections but they did a few times I mean there's that really weird thing a couple of years later where do you remember they did they tried to do a soap called Echo Beach which is a kind of knowing self-aware soap that had people like Jason Donovan Martin McCutcheon Johnny Briggs obviously from Coronation Street was in it quite a few people like that but then there was an accompanying series called Moving Wallpaper which is about the production team who made it ostensibly made Echo Beach with I think Ben Miller was in that and it was just too confusing but again they thought that was going to be you know the new big hit and they kept doing this and it never worked no and nobody seemed to learn from like what happened to El Dorado like that would have been like that should have been the focus like El Dorado was this is what happens every time you try and launch a new soap I mean this Echo Breach had Tony Jordan behind it who had done EastEnders and you would have thought that would have been you know a good inroad but I think to be blunt as someone who doesn't really watch the soaps anymore there's kind of already too many like I don't think what people are crying out for is more soaps they just kind of want fewer better quality soaps and it takes a long time again it goes back to what we were saying earlier about kind of having a lot of faith in stuff you can't say this is our new soap opera but we're only going to give it you know 10 episodes because a soap opera needs to build and it will have peaks and troughs where it's good and where it's bad so if you're going to commit to a soap opera go wild and say we're going to do like Holby City and we're going to commission 52 and there's going to be one every week or we're going to go into the hundreds and have it on three times a week for people to get used to it but you can't treat a soap like it's just a general limited series and expect people to kind of want it back because that's not how soaps work and there's also, just you mentioning El Dorado then has made me think of this, that everything like this, like moving wallpaper, like El Dorado, like so many of the things, soaps that came and went really quickly, is they tried to launch them on the basis of how glamorous they were. Look at all these exciting, glamorous people you can look at. Now, that might work in America, but if you look at the most enduring soaps here, they're all set in really grimy, quiet places <laughs> where the writers and producers are very skillful at bringing drama into Albert Square or where the thing or whatever but they are not glamorous places at all they don't tend to have glamorous characters I mean Bette Lynch was an anomaly because well <laughs> she was a very you know an English version of glamour as well that's the other thing about it but they don't seem to learn that I suppose Hollyoaks was an aberration but that's aimed primarily at a teenage audience it wasn't aimed at the sort of people who normally watch soaps and they just didn't seem to get that and every time it's you know ooh aren't these people who you want to be well no they're not normally and no. they just don't seem to get this at all particularly kind of with you know people doing stuff out of character you don't know what is in and out of character if the soap is quite new and it's really just about making people likable the actual kind of storylines around it so you maybe you need an eastenders or maybe you need a night and day where you have that kind of initial storyline to kick everything off but that should kind of fade into the background as you build these characters and their kind of emotional responses and that's why you know eastenders recently is getting a lot of stick because people are saying i've known these characters 
for 30 odd years they wouldn't do that and that's the risk you take when you you are soap because people have to be fully invested and that means taking on the i'm fully invested in these characters and i love it with the i'm fully invested in these characters and i know they wouldn't do that aspect even though those people have never written for the soap in their lives so yeah it needs to be kind of you need to have a lot more faith if you're going to launch it as a soap or you launch it as a drama and say okay there's potential here for it to be a bit wider but the majority of soaps you need you need time and you need a lot of forgiveness from the audience and it seems to me like the world of television does not have time to you know does not have time you know it doesn't have time for people to forgive it, it does not have time for people to just kind of go i'm not sure i like these characters yet but i might do in a couple of weeks and there's also people don't like being told and i'm just thinking about the launch of night and day here which i did wonder if i'd exaggerated in my head but no everything can find online tries to confirm it that you know when things are launched with big fanfare and you're basically told you will like this people yeah don't like that i mean if you're just looking at what's on my desk now i've got the first series of life on mars which obviously was a big hit but i don't think i mean it was given a launch but it wasn't given a big launch it just took off because it was good and people liked it and a couple of blur albums and obviously you know blur took a while to properly get big because they were kind of just they were just an indie band at first and that kind of pr machine wasn't behind them and i think when people do that with tv shows and they turn out to be well i mean you know recently i've put out an episode of my other podcast about agents of shield and one thing we talked about was how that first series did not justify the hype of the first series and it got better and better as it went on but by that time people weren't watching because they felt a bit put out that they'd invested in this thing that really didn't deliver very early on yeah absolutely and i think you don't really i just i feel like because there's so much i don't know if things get a really big launch i think the, the last thing was probably it's a sin the russell t davis channel 4 because channel 4 aren't really doing much else in terms of drama and you've got a focus now you can kind of say well people are at home and what else are they doing so let's let's try and shove this down their throats but even then i was really surprised that the marketing was yeah we're still going to show it weekly but you can also just watch it on streaming and that really changed the dynamic and the conversation which the majority are now having which is on social media and people being at different places and you can't really do that with a soap to be honest you couldn't say we're putting some episodes up ahead because it's about following that storyline and everyone being in the same place and i would be very surprised if any new soaps launch anytime soon because of that because you don't have that binging element and the nature of how people watch tv has changed and the likes of you know eastenders emmerdale coronation street Hollyoaks, they've been on for over all of those ones over sort of 20 years at the minimum so you need to build up that goodwill and there just isn't there's no interest in building up goodwill <laughs> with audiences anymore it's not it's not a priority because there is so much that audiences can get that you don't you're not expecting their attention for too long i should say in balance that it does appear that there is a huge cult following for night and day which to be honest with you makes a lot of sense to me because you know it had that weird element and also it wasn't brilliant and those are the kind of things that in retrospect people do love but apparently that fan community be lobbying for a dvd release and basically answers come back saying well the amount of royalties we'd have to pay to people for it it's just not cost effective no it's a bit bit unfortunate and damning really absolutely yeah i think that's it was aimed at the right audience of quite youngish people and it was at a time where you would completely focus on that it was new the cast were attractive it had this mix of kind of new up-and-coming actors but also established experienced people and i imagine it was probably like a lot of fun to be on either because it was probably a bit of a mess or because it was just so ridiculous that you'd be like oh this is gonna sort of just be a bit of fun so yeah i can i can totally get why people like myself kind of still vaguely remember it and were probably quite loyal to it at the time but i don't know if i'd have the time for a series like that now okay well in one of the most contrived links i've ever done for this obviously coronation street famously had a cat on the roof might night and day if they carried on much longer have had one of these on the roof meow pets the fantastic range of voice activated pets that you'll love speak softly to them and they'll show you they're happy you're so beautiful but raise your voice it's a scorchio and they'll let you know they're upset neopets can also talk to each other collect them all voice activated neopets <laughs> 
Okay, that was an update for Neopets, which is something I've got no recollection of at all. Shanine, what pets are they and how were they Neo? They were basically virtual pets. So it came about, again, in the late 90s, early 2000s, post-Tamagotchi. So it's kind of Tamagotchi for the website age. And the reason I have a lot of fondness for it is my kind of main internet name, Braintree, came from Neopets. I was registering with a site and I didn't want to use my real name because my real name is quite unusual. So I tabbed in the drop down menu Braintree because there was a game on there that was impossible. You'd ask this tree with a brain for kind of branches questions. <laughs> I'd ask you questions. I can't remember. So I was obviously doing lots of whatever Google was at that point to try and pass these things. Again, I'm shocked to see that it's still going. I thought it was very much of its time, but they were quite kind of alien like pets it wasn't anything that looked like a nice sort of cat or anything but you had to admit you had to log on regularly because you had to feed your pet and, and make sure it didn't get sick and all these sorts of things but there was other little games as well that you could play and again i think the reason again it's just nostalgia for you know games don't look like that anymore neopets is still going but i can't imagine in a world where you have kind of things on your phone and <laughs> tablet that you would go for something like this but it had little cute things like it was you could buy and sell stocks and you could just sort of talk to sort of other non-playable characters and it was more kind of like a game but it was a game that you didn't sort of need a console for really you know it was something that never really in my mind it probably could have had like an animal crossing type spin-off into consoles at the time but it has stayed as just kind of a, a generic sort of flash website really and there was you know multiplayers and things it was probably much safer than Habbo Hotel which are kind of they're, they're linked in my mind but I've used them for very different things because you could probably convince friends to go on sort of Habbo Hotel but Neopets probably seemed even at the age I was of about sort of 12 13 probably a bit too babyish but yeah it's about yeah how for me again you do see people occasionally talk about it but there isn't this huge kind of nostalgia for it that I would expect particularly people of my age to have and I think it's partly because there was just so much going on online if you were online there were a lot of people kind of of my age and a bit younger who weren't quite online yet but there's the aspect that for me that kind of neopets is kind of paved the way for a lot of those online games and message boards and guilds and how games look now like this idea I've been playing the Jeopardy app game and there's a big focus on those games that you join a guild or you join a group and it's that real social side that is actually probably not really needed really but that was what they wanted to encourage but I don't remember I'm just reading something now that apparently to comply with laws that parents had to fax in parental consent they had to fax them in oh that, fax in parental that consent ties it to uh... like of its time I don't think we ever owned a fax but I don't think I've heard the word fax for at least a decade now <laughs> because <laughs> and it's, it's not I've forgotten as well I thought it was an American thing I think it was bought by American officers and that's why it became so big but it was actually formed in the UK and I think that probably came from this idea of you know as I said of Tamagotchis and those kind of things and really how can you use the internet to kind of have something to come back for I think that's the main thing you know to have you something you've got to feed and look after and have responsibility for that was actually free to use and so much now is about credits and all those kind of things I don't remember ever spending cash money on these things and that's probably why I'm quite nostalgic for them. There was quite a big thing for virtual pets at that point though for reasons I don't quite understand because as you say it really started with the Tamagotchis which everyone had and everyone kind of maintained for a bit and then forgot about and the poor things didn't survive but I do know somebody <laughs> who threw one in the River Mersey but that's another story but then it moved on to everyone wanted do you remember those like sentient robot dogs that were a bit like a kind of streamlined yeah. canine that were in that Janet Jackson video and also I'm exaggerating this in my head but I have memories of entire entire episode of so graham norton being taken off with graham norton going oh it's so cute as one of them slowly walked towards him for the whole program yeah. <laughs> i don't know wanted yeah. them but they were about 10 million pounds or something so i haven't got cheap knockoffs <laughs> like i know the things for kids like furbies and some, some adult ones as well and i've still got somewhere somebody got me because of where i was living at that point i couldn't have a cat somebody bought me a thing called a gigabot which is a sort of robot bear cup thing where you just supposed to talk to it and sing to it and feed it with a plastic spoon and so on and it gradually became your friend I couldn't work it out it became annoying and I put it in my wardrobe and every so often you'd just be walking about sort of doing something else or minding your own business you'd hear that boing it made when it came oh to life God. 
And it, it, it is still around somewhere. So, and then there were things like The Sims Pets, which yeah. I think was actually quite realistic. And was it kind of an update to the way Blue Peter initially brought in their pets for, you know, for the benefit of kids who didn't have pets at home? That they could feel some kind of ownership over Jason or Shep or Jack and Jill or whoever. Was it an extension of that? Was it a service or was it just people trying to make money out of people? I think at that point, I don't remember because, like, I grew up in a house with no money, so I wouldn't have been able to ask my mum for money to spend on this nonsense. I think nowadays, definitely, it's about money. But I think, I agree with you that thing about, I downloaded The Sims 4 recently and it's got a pack where you can have a cat or a dog and you can choose the breed and all these kind of things. And yeah, we don't, I don't have a pet. So I was like, oh, I'll just get this and that can be like my pet to look after <laughs> The Sims 4. And it's not as big a commitment as having a baby because you can just leave out some food and it's, it's fine. But yeah, there was, I think there was that air of, I think, sense of responsibility and in a sense, like fun, but a degree of education. So it's like, oh yeah, but I've got a purpose. I'm not just messing about on the internet. I'm looking after my Neopets and I'm learning things and I'm, you know, seeing different types of pets or different types of people <laughs> and how, I don't know, how people really got aware with it. Again, it was probably parents weren't really aware of what was going on, on the internet and just let their kids do anything on dial up. But yeah, I think Fimfa said, for me, it's about kind of how that really cemented how gaming looks now and those ideas of those little apps. And now you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't go on Neopets to do something like that. You'd have an app that would be focused on, well, I would like a cat, but my parents won't let me have a cat. So I'm just going to get an app. That means I can look after a cat. I've got a disturbing question, though. Do you think your Neopet is still out there somewhere? Given the trail we all leave behind ourselves digitally, is it still wandering around on Neopets? Oh, it must be. Yeah, long dead. <laughs> Long dead. I mean, I had multiple ones as well. I feel like they died a lot and I just set up a new one. Like, there was just no sense of responsibility. So, yeah, I, I, I think I looked at it recently and I was like, I don't even think I've got the same email address for when I set up my Neopets. I can't remember that email. I'm more worried about that email address being out in the ether, really, than my animal. But, yeah, it's weird to me that it's it was so long ago and how much, as you said, how much things have improved. And you certainly now, I would not go on a website really to play a game like I'd buy a game or I'd download a game I would not be using you know HTML to talk to some brain tree that has lots of riddles for me and yeah what well, I'd love to know who goes on it now because my suspicion is is people my age nostalgic rather than actually young people I just think we might actually be able to afford one of those robot dogs now <laughs> <laughs> surely everything's come down in price we can only hope so Shanine it's been brilliant thank you oh it's been a pleasure thank you Tim help thinking about me like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles given a new twist looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details timworthington.org